Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and here with me, ready to get all emotional over the mutually beloved musical Cyrano, is North Carolina film critic Joel Winstead. Hello. Hello. Finally, hello. Yes. Finally. It has been a very long time. This was starting to reach levels of, like, Morbius, where you wondered <laughs> if it was actually going to come out. And it has, thankfully. Thankfully. Well, Joel and I have been planning this episode for what feels like a year now due to this film's repeated release delays. We both have been obsessed with it since we saw it for awards consideration back in late 2021, but finally it is in theaters for you all to experience as well. I actually want to point out that if you have not seen the film, you should probably go do so quickly because my fear is that it's not going to last long. I hate it, but it's a reality of the way that movies work these days. It's not Uncharted. It's not a Spider-Man movie. It's not the Batman, which is about to knock everything else out. It's going to be pushed if people don't see it at a high enough volume. So don't waste time. Go forth. And you also want to, of course, see the film before you listen to this episode because we are going to spoil the heck out of the film and you need to go have that emotional experience and connection to it before you hear our conversation. So that's your spoiler warning. That's your plug to go see it. Or if you haven't, you know, if you torrented it, go see it in a theater, give it some money, whatever you can do. Help this one out. It deserves your cash. It deserves your support. It's such a well-made film. And we are excited, so we're going to get into talking about it starting now. Okay, Joel. So I wanted to start at the beginning here because the way that we came together to even be doing this episode is... I saw your posts online on Facebook or wherever yeah. it was. One of the millions of social yeah, media. Everywhere. Online. I was spreading my love. You were just in love with this film. And I think I actually, you saw it before I ended up watching it. And then I remember seeing it and immediately falling in love with it. Much as I personally expected I would do just because I have a strong affinity for musicals in general romance stories i expected this would be my jam i love the national and their music pretty much everything about it was set up to be something made for aaron and it turned out to be that way and so i was like hey do you want to come do this i think you had mentioned something about wanting to podcast at one point and i was like this could be a cool opportunity to get you on and you were excited about that you have not stopped praising this movie ever since so i wanted to find a Find out what it was about this. How was this kind of, how did your experience with it evolve? What did it start as? Like, what were your expectations going into this? Was it just a random watch? Did, were you looking forward to it all year? What was it like the first time you watched it? And then I'm actually also curious, kind of, how has that changed since you've seen it multiple times now? Because I know you've watched it more than once, much like yeah. I have, so... Just kind of give me the little rundown of your experience with this movie up to now. So I'm new in the film critic game. And so I kind of had to shake some trees and, and get things um, that that come uh, with years in the business. And I was looking at the calendar of releases, especially for like awards consideration earlier in the year. 
and I saw Joe Wright and I was like, okay, I'm down. Like I like, I like Joe Wright's films. And then I saw the cast that was attached. I saw Peter Dinklage and I was like, Hey, double check. Like I love Peter Dinklage, uh, not just cause of game of Thrones, but in like station agent and all these other things that he's just been absolutely magnificent. in. and then I saw it was called Cyrano and I didn't really know the story of Cyrano de Bergiac. Once I read the synopsis and I was like, Oh, okay. It's that story. Cause I'd seen Roxanne with Steve Martin. I hadn't seen the original, like the French versions or any kind of play iteration like that. But one I knew the story was, and I knew that it was Dinklage and I was like, oh, this is going to be a great kind of retelling. And then I thought it was a musical and my head just exploded. I'm a huge fan of musicals, not necessarily like a huge fan of like romance films. If it's done well, I'm there, but I had high hopes going into it. And then I saw like a teaser trailer and then that, that Desner soundtrack, the national soundtrack. And then I just, I was so hype. And then watching the film, it's weird because it's definitely shot in the pandemic and you can, you can feel that way. And it's like, it's small and it's personal, but it, it's hard to explain. It's so beautiful. It's like, I don't know if I've yeah. ever described a film this way, but it's, it's beautiful and it's, it's hopelessly romantic. And so like going at it from just being hyped for a musical and hyped for like the new Dinklage vehicle, and then like having it actually be like my favorite film of the year and like a, a one that I'll, I'll watch years to come. Yeah, it was like one of those moments. Yeah, very similar for me. You know, it's tough when we're during award season because what most people don't understand, they see critics posting about all these movies that they're watching that are not even released yet and maybe even weeks or years, not years, but months away from coming out. Or years. And, or years in some cases, yes. And some people and people can get real jealous, real envious of that, understandably. I remember being that person myself. Most folks don't understand what it's like in the mental headspace of a critic during their award season push, is what we call it. It's a nightmare, honestly, in a lot of ways. We oftentimes will watch three to four films back to back to back in a single night over the course of a, a whole week or two or three weeks in a row. Just every free moment you can get, you are putting in movie after movie after movie. And what that can do is give you an, an unfortunately not fair time with a movie because you're not letting anything sit. You're just quickly on to the next one, on to the next one. So for me, when something blows me away in that scenario, it really is something even more special than if it was just one of two movies I was reviewing in any given normal week because it takes much more to stand out because my attention span is wavering. I'm trying to keep track of all the other real life things I've got to do while watching movie after movie after movie. But this one did that. And it, I love the word beautiful. And I think it's so apropos here. I actually listened to a really good interview with Joel Wright about the filming of this during the pandemic. And, you know, he was talking about how difficult it was and how they weren't even going to shoot it. They wanted to shut him down. And he was like, no, we'll do it. And if I remember, he actually ended up getting funded to go to like an island and they created their own little bubble so they could get this done because it was such a passion project for him. And you can feel that oozing out of every frame of the production design in this movie, the cinematography, obviously the incredible score and soundtrack from the Desner brothers. And 
it is just kind of the perfect marriage of a period piece. And a lot of times period pieces can turn me off. So I was a little nervous about that, thinking, well, I don't want to go too goofy. But man, it just, it works. That cinematography especially, it's got this smokiness to it that I think just screams longing in the way that the picture looks. It's kind of hazy and it makes you kind of feel emotional. It's a strange beast in how it can evoke that. But if it was just shot like a real normal, very crisp, you know, colorful, popping colors and stuff, like say like a greatest showman type of cinematography, I don't think it would work at all. And it wouldn't provoke the same emotion, but it, it stuck with me big time. And it's that kind of movie that for me, and I'm assuming the same for you, I immediately after ending it was like, where's the soundtrack? Is this out yet? Because I need to put it. Thankfully it was months before the movie released. Thank God. I was able to pull it up on Spotify and go to town and just listen to it over and over and over. Well, uh, two things. Seamus McGarvey, the cinematographer, uh, works with Joe Wright a lot and has done like atonement and Anna Karenina with him. Um, but he also works with like Tom Ford and like Nocturnal Animals. So like he knows like mood lighting and he knows how to like keep it like keep it things sexy, keep things kind of like darker. But but it, he's he's an excellent cinematographer. And when I, I got a physical copy from MGM of this, I got a DVD of Cyrano. And when I finished watching it, there was nothing on Spotify. There was oh, no. one there was one song they had something to say was on just the one song. And so like, I had to like, just play the movie in the background of my life. So I could listen to the soundtrack. It was it was hard times until it became available. And then the day it hit, I was like, it's I mean, it still hasn't stopped playing on my on my playlist. Yeah, agreed. It's one of those that doesn't wear itself out, which is a rare trait as well. in when it comes to musicals, every single track for the most part is just a complete banger. Uh, you know, and I guess that's probably the wrong word because it just that doesn't feel like bangers. <laughs> there are some bangers, moody ballads, and so yeah, there is one with Dinklage at the beginning. I I will get lost on the actual track names throughout this podcast, but there's the awesome rhyming duel scene. Yeah, yeah when I was born. When I was born, that's a yeah. that's a banger. I guess yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about Cyrano de Bergiac, the main character. I had seen this once before I'd seen the old Gerard Depardieu version and it was fine. <laughs> it was very French <laughs> and it was not a musical. I don't recall it being a musical. I saw it in English class years, decades ago, but I just remember it being very kind of off putting at the time and felt out of my wheelhouse. It didn't seem like something I would be into in the character. I, never really connected with, I don't think. And it, it can make it a little off-putting. So in the original, Cyrano has a large nose. Like he's a kind of a normal human being looking man, but has a large nose. And so here they casted Peter Dinklage. And so it's a dwarf. And so he's very, very vividly uh, physically different from Haley Atwell. Is it Haley Atwell? Is it Atwell? Okay. Mm -hmm. I get my Haley's mixed up. It's definitely not. No, it's Haley, Haley Bennett. Haley Bennett. Bennett. There we go. So it wasn't. Yeah. So that's the other one. Haley Bennett, who is, uh, you know, much taller, obviously, than Peter Dinklage. And I think it worked out really well. 
Cyrano as a character is drawn to be witty, poetic, very skilled with his sword in this. He's also incredibly nice and incredibly giving of himself to his friends. And all of these things, I think, helped make him a really compelling character for me, as well as just the performance. I mean, this is what I would say is easily one of the five best male performances of the year. He should have been easily. nominated for an Oscar, and that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, there's lots of people who are worthy of them that don't get nominated, but he was somebody I was really hoping for. This movie, unfortunately, with the release schedule, it got done dirty in the awards. Yeah. This should be all over the nominations, frankly. I just don't think enough people saw it. But anyway, for me, this version of Cyrano, I really appreciated that he is not just a victim of mm -hmm. his circumstance. He, he clearly has a pride about him that has been wounded. And you could look at him and think maybe he's overcompensating in a lot of ways but he doesn't ever seem to do it in a way that is hateful towards other people there, there is the scene there in the theater early in the film before the duel what leads to the duel where he's talking to this quote one of the greatest actors of the generation they say that's mm -hmm. on the stage but he's challenging the person because he has a love of the purity of art. And I don't know why, but that really related for me. And maybe it's because I have an obsession with my podcast, and that's my quote, art, is I want the audio to be as good as possible. You know, I want the editing to be as good as possible. I care about the production of things. I care about making sure I hit all of the points and I say all of the things and I want to stay positive and I, I know I have like ideals for my version of art and that's what I see in the Cyrano character. And so I wonder for you, like what was it about Dinklage that made him such a great performance in this for you? And what made you kind of connect with this version of Cyrano? I, I think that it all, it all boils down to just Peter Dinklage because I had seen Roxanne and even in that one, the nose is even more grotesque. Uh, built for a comedic effect. And I, since I've seen this, I've gone back. I didn't watch the Gerard Depardieu films, but I had, I've, I've watched clips and things like that to see how they measure up. And Gerard Depardieu's nose, while grotesque, isn't like, it's not like a deal breaker. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, it's like, okay, it's not that bad. But yeah. like, but at the end of the day, everyone watching those movies knows that those are prosthetics and that they're not, real like that it's things that are built and they get to go home at the end of the night and take off that nose and then be who they're rich people who they are peter dinklage and his partner erica schmidt who wrote this stage play and wrote the screenplay they are able to connect with an audience and with me like on a visceral level because peter dinklage doesn't get to go home and take off a nose like that is him and the the words that he's saying on stage when he has that duel, when he's fighting Degish's little boy toy, he's singing about all the hate that he's had to endure. And, and, and when the song ends and he runs the sword through him and he says, it all goes in and God, how it hurts. And like, that's how the film starts. <laughs> like it's, you know that this man is like extremely self-conscious about his stature, 
but he has this pride that won't let him show that. So he, you know, he postures and he has, you know, his wit and his words and, and that's working for him very well. But I think what I, I connect to most is like, there are things about him that he just, he can't change. And he has this, this love, this unrequited love that he, that he wants so bad, but he, what's holding him back is himself. And it's not a nose and it's not, you know, this it's, it's, it's purely human. I think that you're hitting on something there that is actually really important that I had not even noted when I was prepping, prepping for this. I was two words in one prepping and preparing. Um, and that is the fact that it's personal and he's acting as a character in a story, but you're right. He has experienced this himself. And so I think that comes out in the performance. I think some of that came out in his Game of Thrones performance too. So oh, yeah. the ways that people treated him are indicative of real life experiences that he's had to endure. Which is why he's like one of the fan favorites of that show is because he's he's very relatable. In a land of dragons and sorcerers, he is so relatable. Definitely. And he is able to convey that so well i think and he shows us that there's almost an unfortunate consequence of being too nice because the whole story of this is like a tragic arc of we have roxanne who is sort of wowed by this gorgeous man christian when she sees him at the theater her family, it's very much like a, almost like a Cinderella type of environment, minus Roxanne is not Cinderella. She comes from money, but her mother or stepmother or whoever it is that is kind of taking care of her is all about like, you need to go, it's, it's a cultural thing, right? And a time mm-hmm. period thing. You need That's to go marry Duke de Guiche is the one who can give you security and money and comforts. And he's the one we want for the family. That's what you marry. And Roxanne is very much, yeah, no, but this guy's gorgeous <laughs> and I want him, which is fine. Like it's natural. She's a young woman, right? And so that's her place. And Cyrano is this good friend of hers who has always longed for her. And I think for me, that's another big part of the relatability factor where I can't relate to Cyrano and his physical stature and the things that he may have had to endure because of that. I certainly can relate. And I think many people either can relate or have experienced this feeling before at some point in their life, right? To where you understand what it's like to essentially be friend zoned. And how do you deal with that experience? And that's what this movie is all about is he's been friend zoned and simultaneously it gets even worse because she's like, Hey, can you hook me up with your buddy? And now he's in this position and he doesn't ever want to take the shot because he's been rejected so much. He's got so much pain. Like you get to a point where you don't want to deal with that anymore. You just want to internalize it. You want to keep it tight because then you can't get hurt anymore if you don't put yourself out there. And so it's like the devil, you know, in the pain that you have to experience by sucking it up is almost preferable to the devil you don't, which is what would it feel like if she said no and rejected me? And so I think that there's something just incredibly relatable about 
this arc and admirable about Cyrano because of the fact that he's willing to go and do this act for Christian. And I wondered kind of what you thought about that from both a, you know, movie standpoint, but also even a personal one. Like, is this something that Cyrano is a very good person for doing? Is this something that should not be expected? Is it something where we should think less of Christian for even allowing it or, you know, wanting this to, to happen so he can help woo Roxanne? How do we feel about Yeah, Yeah, well, this? I mean, if you step back and look at the whole <laughs> dynamic, it's like, this is never going to work out in the long run. But I, I think that it's, first of all, it's, I mean, so much drama, right? And if you're looking for a romance, I mean, this is, this is going to hit on every cylinder. And the, another thing about Cyrano and his love for Roxanne is that, yes, there's a lot of pride in the way, but he also through that and through not letting himself kind of have this love or like speak his love to Roxanne, he's built her up in his mind. To, and he even says it himself. He's like, to confess my love would shatter the beautiful dream. Like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want that because he kind of likes that chasing of her. And then when he realizes that he can't have her, like when she confesses to him in the bakery that she loves Christian, the hope on his face and the realization hurts that it's not him because she's like talking very vaguely and he thinks she's like oh she's gonna confess her love to me and it, it he got he has this hope built up on his face and then it all comes crashing down and then she notices it and because during this time she's like helping him like fix a, a wound on his hand and she notices it and she's like are you okay and he's like no it's just the wound playing up and when he's talking about the wound playing up, he's talking about that deep wound that is always there with himself. And that's just some masterful writing and acting. And that whole, that whole, that whole scene right there is just absolutely heartbreaking. And I mean that, and when I watched that, I'm like, he's going to win the Oscar. Like this is, this is the best acting I've seen this year. Agreed. And I, I relate it to something like modern day Tinder dating or, you know, dating apps. Are you married at the moment? I'm married. Okay. So I'm now single, twice divorced. And so I've been living in this world and I haven't done much. And part of it is for this reason where we're essentially in a place where most dating takes place in a shopping environment online through an app. You're looking for this ideal person. And one of the things that people often are afraid of is what's going to happen when I show up at the date and the person doesn't look like this perfect you know, picture of themselves from three years ago on uh, a prom that they were completely made up for. And that was the picture they put out there for everybody to fall in love with. And now they look completely different. They're 20 pounds heavier and their hair's completely different. And, you know, or the, the dude like is clean shaven in his picture. And now he's got like this big scruffy beard. And a big old belly. Right. And it's like, that's the example here of exactly where this is heading. And you can't not know that at some point you have to be able to speak for yourself and you are selling her a lie and where do you draw that line and and i think it reminds me of just kind of the links we go for our perceived loves and our desires ultimately christian is like well that doesn't really matter as long as she falls in love with me. Like we can deal with that later. And I think that can be a pitfall of a lot of real 
relationships in actual life is when we make those concessions and we're like, you know what? It can be forgiven. <laughs> we can deal with that later. And that can really kind of build a foundation that can be hard to recover from and cause a lot of problems. Like had this film not ended as tragically as it did, there was going to be a reckoning. It was coming. And the likelihood out of this very possibly could have been a whole lot of people on completely different life paths and none of them ever connecting again, all three of them going separate ways because they've destroyed the relationships that they had and the ability to trust each other. And honestly, props to Christian because when Christian first found out about this idea from Cyrano, he was like, we shouldn't do this. Like, I don't want to lie. And Cyrano, Cyrano talks him into it. He's like, no, my, cause he, he saw it as an opportunity Did. to talk about his love to Roxanne without ever having to be shut down. He could express yeah. his true feelings through Christian and he used Christian. I mean, he did. Yeah, he did. He's essentially a puppet that Cyrano's, you know, got his hand in and is working. It's actually one of my favorite quotes in the whole film. I posted it today. He says, call it a fantasy, call it a dream, call it pretend. A dream might be a lie, but it's also true. And I just, I, I love that. Um, yeah. It's extremely powerful and sad in this case, of course. But ultimately, yeah, you're right. I mean, he does kind of use Christian for that purpose. And we get to this point where we come full circle and Christian and Roxanne have kind of fallen in, I don't even want to say in love because I just don't believe it's love, but they've become infatuated with each other to the point where they end up meeting and they have this moment. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because of how perfectly shot it is in the awkwardness. Talking about the, at the, the balcony, the balcony. It's the best scene of the movie. Yeah. And the best it, song. Yes. Is it? It's overcome. That's overcome, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, my favorite song as well. And it's a great moment because she's like, just talk to me. And you watch him fumble through this. And there's a simultaneous feeling, at least for me, Joel, of I feel for him. Like, I, I have sympathy. I'm like, man, I don't want you to mess this up. I'm watching you completely and utterly fail. And I'm mixed because at the same time, I have a sympathy for him. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, laughing like you deserve this you it's about time you guys got caught and he ends up with this terrible line of dialogue and calls her flower or something and she just loses her crap and she's like i'm not a flower and she gets all upset she's like talk to me like your letters and of course he can't do that ultimately this comes around even further and degish now wants to marry her so the geish played by ben mendelson which i think is a perfectly suited role for ben mendelson he does these oh, yeah. slightly slimy characters just better than anybody in my opinion and he decides he wants to marry her and so she's like and threatens to essentially rape her is basically what he says he's oh, like, not, nothing essential that he's, okay he's threatening that oh yeah <laughs> he's like i'm taking you tonight one way or the other, whether you like it or not, is what he says. And so she goes, and she's going, I'm going to marry Christian. From a time period standpoint, how does all this kind of play for you? Like, do you see Degish as a true villain in this story? 
for one thing, does he become that? And how do you feel about Roxanne's actions, like leading up through the marriage? So in the beginning, I mean, everyone kind of is at fault in one way or another. Roxanne, in the beginning of the film, is being, you know, courted by the Duke who has like, you know, his little man toys around. So I don't really know what the end game is for the Duke, but they, uh, he calls him. Oh, there's a word for it. I wrote it down. He's it's his retinue. I had to look it up. My re- yeah, join my retinue. Join my retinue. <laughs> Which is creepy. In the beginning of the film, Roxanne is getting dressed. She's going to go to the play and she didn't have enough money to go to the play, but the Duke was going to take her to the place. So he's, she's like, well, I'll go with the Duke and I'll take him. I'll, you know, whatever, not satiate him. I'll I'll play his game with him just so I can go to, you know, this play. And the entire time, the Duke is asking her, like, does this mean that you love me? Does this mean that you're going to say yes to me? Like, he, the entire time, he's, like, asking her. Now, if she would have said, like, no, I don't love you or no, I don't want you, I don't know that that would necessarily have stopped him at that point. But she does lead him on in the beginning. But that's, you know, Roxanne, much like Cyrano, Roxanne looks through the world with, like, rose-colored glasses like she wants this true love that's gonna like sweep her off her feet and you know tickle every fancy and and be this like perfect human being and and even like when she sings her song at the beginning um something to say there she's in the cart with the duke and they're traveling to the play and she's looking out the window and she's seeing these couples dancing and it's very like fanciful and it's very like dreamlike and at one point one of the one of the couples she's she's singing this song about longing for a man uh, of the perfect man and one of the couples is dancing and then the man starts to like float away into the sky like you know like she it's it's just it's so poetic of like she's never going to find this love of hers and she's never going to find that perfect dancing partner and so she herself even if the duke was a, a smart match so they say I don't know if she would have even been in a place to have that kind of relationship because she is so she's so picky and looking for that perfect thing. Yeah, I I had the same kind of take on her is that there's a lot of qualities about her that are interesting and appealing. And yet she's not a perfect person either. And, you know, Cyrano doesn't necessarily know her as well as one might hope either. He knows her more than she knows Christian when she kind of falls and becomes infatuated with him. But there's a limit there as well because their relationship is kind of cut off at this friend's kind of vague. They're not they're not very close, as as all I can say. And so there's things about her that he is yearning for when he doesn't have the full picture either. So I think that that adds to the intrigue in this whole story is that she's not a perfect person. She's no, I don't know, Belle in Beauty and the Beast. I don't know. I don't know who a perfect person, but there's plenty of stories with there's an ideal woman that everyone wants to be with that has no flaws, but that's not Roxanne either. But then the way that DeGuiche ends up he becomes this person who he literally says, I deserve her. He starts when he's singing his song at the end. Yeah. What I he, deserve. He is that, is that, Oh, that's the name of it. Okay. That's the name of the song. <laughs> well, that's fitting. I didn't look that up, but yeah. Cause he's like, I deserve a happy life. 
whatever I'm not given, I'll take. Why should I have to beg for what everybody wants? And I'm just like, dude, that's some creepy, dark yeah. stuff. It's toxic. And the way that, it, the, that way that scene is shot, too, with the lighting and his cloak and all that, dude, it's, he's, he's full villain. He really is. And, I mean, to the, and then, obviously, to the point where he has to make this call and he's talking to one of his vi- advisors about who's going to go to the front. And he says, it's a suicide mission. Do I send the most expendable or the bravest? And ultimately, he wants to get rid of them in order to have her for himself. I think he also wants to win. I don't think that that's ever in question, but I think he sees an opportunity in which to kind of kill two birds with one stone. And he certainly sets it up to be that way. Then from there on through the end, it is just one tragedy after another. It it feels like Cyrano gets the word. He is talking to Christian and, and he says, I'd rather die down there fighting than live up here starving which makes sense as well. Like at some point they're going to have to do something. And then they have this moment where they're gearing up to all go down there. And one of the songs comes on and it's called wherever I fall, wherever I fall. Right. And the lyrics are heaven is wherever I fall is kind of the, main chorus there and the crux of this was that you have all of these people in this army and it might be a baker it might be a woodcutter it could be a soldier but it's a variation of people and they're all essentially writing these letters to their loved ones some of them wives some of them kids some of them parents and the way it worked is someone was going to collect all of these letters and then send them back. And then they were going to march off fully expecting all of them to die. And it crushed me this time around. I watched it the first time and I remember I was overcome by the romance aspect of the movie so much that I kind of wasn't connected on this part of it, on the Degish and the, what was being done to Cyrano and Christian kind of behind the scenes. It was, I was so hyperly like locked into the Roxanne and Cyrano bits and the other songs. But this time I was listening to these lyrics of this song and I was bawling just thinking about how maybe it's because of Russia and Ukraine happening right now as well, that it's just elevated on my mind, but it's a crushing moment. And to think that this is something that's, also transcendently realistic like this is something people throughout history have experienced and had to go through and yet even in that moment awaiting their inevitable death that's about to come it's still there's a poetry and a beauty about those kind of final moments and the way that they convey words and for me i think that that was a perfect example to wrap up this whole thing of the whole movie in a in a minimal like phrase of just it's all about like how you can express yourself in words and it doesn't have to be for everybody that's something i love about christian towards the end is he ultimately i feel like comes to realize like it's okay that i don't have to be you i don't have to be able to speak the way you speak 
I just have to be me. And so the, it, I think that that's important. You know, like if the message of the movie was you're worth nothing if you can't write poetry or sword fight while you rhyme somebody to death, then that would be a problem. But it's kind of both sides. And Dinklage, as he's collapsing at the end of this movie, has a great line. He says, and I loved my pride. And he fully admits like his pride has literally cometh before the fall. Like his pride has ultimately led to his inability to ever have the life with Roxanne that potentially he could have because he was too scared. And that's it, man. This movie ends on him dying. Like he dies and it's, he's in her arms. I mean, I guess woohoo, but like you die with the sudden realization that you screwed everything up and you wasted every opportunity you had to make a better life out of this. And anyway, I rambled a bit there, but you know, what did you think about, I guess the ending and ultimately how all of this works out for Cyrano? I think the, the endings, I think if it didn't have this ending, it wouldn't be as impactful of a film. If, if someone got to ride off into the sunset, it would, it would cheapen it. That song you're referring to wherever I fall, it comes up at the end of the movie and it's three characters singing that we've never seen before in this movie. And it's kind of jarring when, when I was first watching the film it was kind of jarring. I'm like, who, you know, I'll, it wasn't as bad because one of the guys, the guy with the big beard is Glenn Hansard from my favorite band, the frames. And also he won the Oscar for best original song in 2009 Once? for falling slowly. Yeah. Falling slowly, man. Oh my God. One of and so I was great. like, I, it's one of the, one of my favorite songs of all time because, and like that, you know, his band, um, the frames, which you should look up, um, will do is, is so good. They're not together anymore, but so I was into it for that aspect, but I, in my head, looking at it like critically, it just didn't flow with the film. I didn't think and I was like, well, this is kind of jarring. And then on my second and my third viewing, it really puts together these themes of the whole film. It kind of ties everything in together. And honestly, without that last song, the next 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes of the film do, aren't going to hit as hard because it, it's talking about all those themes that you just got done talking about. And in going back to Dagish, it was an, there's another character where pride has become this toxic thing that's going to be the, a downfall because Dagish wasn't going to send them to the front. But then when he was wounded, then he's like, you're going right now. You're leaving tonight. My man Christian didn't even get to seal the deal. He had to go. And I think that, you know, Dagish and Roxanne and Christian and Cyrano, there's a little bit and every single one of them that that is holding them back. There's a reason why Roxanne hasn't been married yet. You know, she's waiting for that true love that maybe doesn't even exist. You know, everyone wants to feel loved. The portrayal of longing where you build someone up in your head, regardless of their faults is so incredibly relatable. And the fact that that love never gets fully realized and the potential of that relationship is never seen either with Christian or Cyrano. It's almost like a horror film when your mind fills in the blanks of like the shark that you never see in Jaws, like your mind fills in the blanks of all the life they could have had together. And it makes it so much more brutal and romantic. It makes it so much more effective. Yeah, I think that I, that's a key aspect of this. And I say this on this podcast all the time when Patrick, we talk about it. Anytime we're doing a romance movie or a love movie, I tend to 
push my view on people, which is I, I just don't think that the modern day and historical even views on love, I mean, are necessarily healthy because there's a quote from one of my favorite authors and favorite books, a book by Tom Robbins called Still Life with Woodpecker. And the quote is, we waste time looking for the perfect lover instead of creating the perfect love. And I think that it just is the ideal way to go about life. And you don't fall in love. You fall in infatuation. You fall in lots of different emotions. But love is the thing that happens when you make a choice to act on it and to do things with integrity and intentionality over and over and over even when it sucks and doesn't feel great. Like that's when it's love to me. And we kind of don't get that. Like society as a whole doesn't think of it like that. They, we think of love as just that nice, warm, cuddly feeling that we get when we're comforted by someone's presence or turned on, you know, by their presence, whatever it is. And it's tough because it can really waste a lot of years and a lot of potential good matches for people uh, because they're just, they don't understand that it's more about making the choice. And that's what I see in this tragedy. Like if Roxanne and Cyrano could have had this conversation openly years ago about his feelings for her and she would have been open to giving him that you know, potential time to to get to know her, they could have ended up with a life that was just vastly different, right? And maybe they were perfect for each other. And yet, instead, you know, it was like this. And that's too bad. I did want to talk about the music because it is a musical. And so I want to ask you how you felt about, I guess, both overall, just the whole soundtrack and score. I know you love it, like I love it. But what what do you what makes you love it? And then musicals in general tend to go one of two ways there's either the musical that uses songs to push plot which is what i believe a musical should be and is my favorite kind of musical it's why i love stage musicals at broadway and such because they are scenes in the film or the story just moving it forward then there are other kinds of musicals that are really more just points for them to stop and insert a song into and i feel this is definitely more of a stage musical i i'm the kind of guy personally and i related to this strongly because i love to send song lyrics to say things that i feel it's something i've done for pretty much all my life is i'll listen to a song i'll be like oh my gosh this perfect chorus or this perfect phrase it describes what I am experiencing and I'll send that to someone and be like, you need to listen to this because it conveys my emotional state right now. And that's how I felt watching this and listening to this soundtrack over and over and over. And I mean, it's the national, so I'm not surprised because their music does that to me normally too. But in context of the story, it just worked so well. It just kind of, it swept me away, honestly. Did it do that for you? Was it effective in actually progressing character depth? Yeah, and I think it's it's because exactly like that, like, you know, typical musicals, right, you're, they're going to insert like a song and dance number, they're going to tap, they're going to 
pull out props and use those. They're going to do the musical thing, which is fine. And I love those. And Cyrano is different in the fact that it's, it's, it's a film with music in it. It's a film with songs in it. And these are songs. There's a couple of like numbers, I guess, with some choreographed stuff, but it, it all, it all fits and it all makes sense. And it's all grounded to the reality that they're in. Cause it is kind of like a fanciful version of somewhere in Italy, wherever they are. So they're not shooting for like a real world setting, but it, it, the songs match the reality that they're in. These songs are, they're the inward longings of the characters. I'm like an, almost like an inward dialogue of these people's wants and feelings and desires. You know, a perfect example is when Roxanne is singing every letter. Uh, and then later Peter Dinklage joins in the song. And so does Christian joins in and sings and they kind of have like this menage a trois via this song because it's very it's a very sexual song this movie is very g-rated in terms of its it's considering it's a great romance like there's like nothing in it but this song is very sexual and, and it's and it's all about these letters and who's sending them and the intentions behind it and we you wouldn't get that subtext without without that song and not only do the songs push that narrative but they also push the push the plot there's there's points to these songs there's a reason that they're being sung and making it all the more effective and all the more relatable because they're singing about such deep emotions especially peter dinklage when he's singing madly in the beginning and then again and at the end of the movie he sings that song with roxanne as he's dying and i don't know how people can keep a dry eye i don't understand it yeah i i don't either those are the kind of times when I'm just like, you must be dead inside if you can't feel this and you don't have emotion when this is happening. It's certainly not me. I'm soft hearted and it, it hits me and just for a big old wallop. Oh, I, I so, like, so much. I'm over here like heave crying, like shaking, you know, and I'm just like looking over. My wife's giving me this look and I'm just like, I, this is beautiful. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, Overcome and Madly are, I would say, my two favorite songs. Just from a romance perspective, those, like I said, those are the ones that I feel like I can rip lyrics from and send them to someone right now, and they would perfectly convey my feelings. Um, but I just love all of them. I think they're all so perfect in the context of when they're sung. And we didn't really talk about it, but, you know, that rhyming, rapping, whole opening sequence with them at the theater in Cyrano... Yeah. It's so good. I mean, it's he so good. Comes out and is just verbally just sparring with this guy, and it turns into that sort of rappy battle, and it's an incredibly energetic moment and scene. And it's one of two scenes really where he gets to sword fight mm-hmm. and showcase some skills. And I like that. There's the great one where he's getting ambushed, and he's like. <laughs> He's like, only 10? I would have thought you would have sent 100. And, you know, and just kind of like disposes of them. And I thought that that was a lot of fun too. Especially, I'm not going to say we should necessarily always think of things like this, but knowing Dinklage's character and history in Game of Thrones, it just feels a little different watching him with a sword, you know, taking dudes down in the alleyway. Kind of was like, it's a little bit of vindication for Tyrion, I think. I would (laughs) have loved to see Tyrion get to do that. So, yeah, I really like that as well, just from the physical aspect of it, that it had some of that. There's not too much, but it does kind of give you just a tiny bit of of energy 
It does, and it elevates it. And now it does. It elevates the scene. It elevates the lighting because when that happens and that duel happens, there's like chandeliers in the background, and they like lower the chandeliers down and like light. This. It's just, it's the whole. It's just fantastic. That song is called "When I Was Born," and it's fun to watch. And he's like lyrically like slaying this guy as he's like slaying him with a sword. And if you listen to the words, it's absolutely heartbreaking because it's talking about like how like you know, God has a sense of humor because he made him. And like, it's just like, it's really heartbreaking stuff. Um, all the while this guy he's fighting is also throwing insults as well. So yeah, another instance of a perfect song for, of the perfect moment with just elevated by masterful filmmaking. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Is there anything I missed that you had down that you wanted to talk about or mention? No, I've been I've been deleting notes that I wanted to talk about as we've been going along, and I have a blank page. Oh, good. I was, I was you started to worry me there with that phrase. I was like, oh no, why are you deleting notes? <laughs> Did I? <laughs> but it's because you we already covered it, so that's we, good. We've been covering it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man, this is good. I I love this movie, and it is. I love that you mentioned it's one that you're going to watch over and over. It's, I I agree. I've worn out my DVD screener copy. I can't wait to see it in beautiful 4k or theater screen i really want it at home i'm gonna go see in a theater too just because i want to put my money where my mouth is like i just told everybody else to at the beginning of this episode and support it and i like to do that with movies that really do i feel like they earn my money i want to give it to them but i'm going to buy it as soon as i can to watch at home and i just can't wait to have like some sort of a surround sound soundtrack and score because the score is excellent as well instead of that DVD quality. Okay, it looks great in DVD. I can't imagine how much more beautiful and defined it's going to look when it's actually in the a higher resolution. So, and I'm crossing my fingers for special features. I'm a little nervous because it was made during the pandemic. And I feel like if they're going to short on extras and commentaries and stuff, that that might be the time when filmmakers didn't have any extra attention to give to things. But I always love deep special features and i'll hope for the best we'll see what happens i hope so it's not it came out this on the 25th and it's not playing anywhere near me right now and i'm really upset about that hopefully it gets released into more theaters but it's not doing too hot at the box office so we'll see how that goes but definitely gonna get that 4k hopefully there's like a sweet steel book or something oh that'd be awesome i'm glad that joe got to make this and his passion project and has had the success that he had that enabled them to take a chance and be able to do this. Cause once it bombs, which sadly it seems to be financially speaking, it's probably not going to be something that people are going to want to take a chance on him making something else like it, but it doesn't really matter cause he's already made it. And I do highly recommend the director's guild of America podcast. That's the one I listen to with Joe, Wright. It's one of my few actual movie related podcast that I personally listen to regularly. And it's just an outstanding, outstanding podcast where a director screens their movie for the DGA members and gets to pick another director to interview them and their 30 minute conversations. And they're always super insightful. So I recommend that one. And there's another one. Was it, I want to say you told me about it. Was it empire? I don't know. Google it. Well, Dinklage is on WTF podcast with Marin, which is great to talk about some okay. stuff here a lot. That's a really good one too. Okay, good. Yeah. 
So this is one of those movies that I think it's worth seeking out and hearing what the actors have to say about it as well. And it's failing at the box office. And if you want to see a, a film that's heartfelt, I mean, this is from, from the ground up. It's written by Peter Dinklage's wife. Um, Haley Bennett is the star who's married to the director, Joe Wright. So like all through this is just like people doing this as because it's, they're passionate about it because they want to do it. And it shows in the craftsmanship and it shows in the acting. And uh, if, if you like musicals and you like film, you need to do yourself a favor and watch it. Absolutely. And I do want to point out one more quote before we go. And that is because it doesn't really fit anywhere in the movie, but I just, we're both men of faith. And so I want to throw this out there. There's a great kind of quiet line in this movie when Cyrano walks in to meet with Roxanne at the end and they're in the church and a nun comes around and he says, Sister Claire, tonight I will let you pray for me. And she just looks at him and she kind of smiles and she responds and she says, I have not waited for your permission. And it was just beautiful. I thought that was beautiful because here's a guy who feels like he's sometimes not worthy of it or doesn't need it. And he's come to a point where he can accept that knowing he's on his deathbed from this war wound. It's when a lot of people find Jesus, so to speak, but I just love the response. It's not damning. It's not mean. It's just, I have been, I've been, I've been praying for you all this time and didn't need you to, to give me permission and nor does anyone. So I just want to throw that up, but yeah. So Joel, thank you. This has been great. Tell people where they can find your writing and your work online. Where can they find you on social media, et cetera? Yeah. So I write for my site, winsteadreviews.com. I can, you can also see me. I write a lot for inside the film room. You can find me on Facebook, uh, Winstead Reviews, Twitter, Winstead Joel, Instagram, Winstead Reviews. You can find me. I'm out there. Awesome. Well, next week, or I guess the rest of this week for us here at Feelin' Film, uh, FF Plus will be out with The Weekend Away, Turning Red, and Fresh. Not sure how those are going to all shake out, which episode they're going to come in, but they're all coming. Reviews of those are all coming soon. And then next week, we'll be having our main episode. Patrick will be back, and we'll be covering The Batman, of course, because that's all anybody's going to be talking about for the next few weeks, I would expect. Until you see Turning Red, which also, by the way, quick sneak peek, it's really good and unique. And I'm excited for people to get to discover that one as well. Well, that's it for us. Thank you guys for listening. We will be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling Phil. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.